Left. Right. So, unlike a politician, I am not great at skirting issues that I don't want to talk about. However, today, we are talking about politics. So, sit back, enjoy, and uh, cringe. This is Sip Talk. Grab a drink and enjoy. Cheers. 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 So, welcome to episode 42 of Sip Talk. Um, we are about to hit live on the different platforms. Uh, today we're going to be talking about politics as we're recording right before the first presidential debate. Uh, we'll see how dirty this gets. We got live James the Bosnia Boswell in South Carolina, philosopher, accountant, professional referee, bartender. I'm missing anything. Uh, I usually have a wisecrack or something to to add along with it. So um, I don't know. We'll just go with angry old man today. All right, and I'll let these guys introduce themselves. We got Adam and John. Hey, I'm Adam. What's going on, John? Picked them up off the street. Yeah. <laughs> Adam and John work here at the Julia Group. They're both real estate agents slash real estate broker. And uh, they're interested in chiming in on the politics that we're talking about today. Sure. So, James, this is an issue that you pushed. This is one that I tried to skirt. But it seems that because we, you know, we have the debate uh, that's about to happen in a few hours, it seems like something that couldn't hurt. Obviously, if somebody's watching this in post-production, They've already heard about the debate, so we don't know what they're going to talk about in the debate. No. Uh, I'm really curious for it. But James, you had some topics in particular you wanted to talk about today. Uh, as a loyal Southerner, uh, you know, I imagine where you're voting this year. I'm voting for Giant Meteor. A giant, is that a write-in candidate? Yes, yes. Um, candidacy is a long shot, but I really think that his platform just speaks to the issues right now. Like... But in, in all seriousness, um, I think that with the first debate coming up, and we've kind of talked about politics a little bit. We've, we've kind of brushed the topic, kind of like a car that gets a little loose around turn four, brushes the guardrail. Um, <laughs> sure. And so this time we're just going to, like, step on the gas and spin out into, like, I guess – the crowd we're gonna, we're gonna car we're gonna, parts all yeah, over I mean, we're not we're not holding back we got some bald tires on it's raining uh this is an issue that i've avoided because it's so polarizing and people are so fucking passionate about politics and it's super divisive and the last thing i want to be is divisive because it's just kind of a, a dick way to go about living life i think you know if anything i want to be more inclusive and more understanding of the topics that are at hand. Uh, obviously, this year we're looking at a pretty hardcore Republican president, uh, Trump, who's very religious. We all know him for his deep Christian beliefs. Uh, and then you have Joe Biden, uh, obviously uh, an atheist, uh, you know, and, uh, <laughs> and, a, and, a, and an abortionator. Uh, but James, no, really, where, where do you want to start? Because because you, you're leading. Well, I I highlighted three kind of topics that all that there there's a there's way more than three things to talk about for the political environment in this country and where this election is heading. But I think three that I think we could start with would be the role of religion in public policy and how much religion should inform lawmaking. Um, the the general state of healthcare in this country and, and and how free market economics and healthcare have an interplay. And then just the general role of geographic disparities in location and how they play into an individual's actual voting power and representation in government. Um, should, should, we, should we just start on the religious end of that? Yeah, so I think that the, to frame the issue, the question is, how much should 
religious beliefs of either a lawmaker or a constituency have an effect on the actual public policy that is enacted and enforced in a country. Because, and I think the easiest issue to see this would be the debate around abortion, that the, the biggest break there is going to be people that are strongly religious, generally Christian religions, Catholicism being the strongest of the, of the, the different factions of Christianity, but that's not excluding others that, that feel that abortion is morally wrong from a religious point of view. And the question is, even if you feel that way religiously, is that good public policy? Adam, you want to lead on that one? Yeah, I do. I, I think that this topic is really a hot topic right now, especially with the recent Supreme Court pick who has written her own papers on the fact that she feels that she was appointed by God to be a Catholic an eye for catechism on the Supreme Court and rule by religion above policy. Um, I think that that religion and state is supposed to stay separate, and I think that it's way more heavily so, and we can say both parties to a certain degree, to kind of rule in policy that can affect generations from now. And I think that's it's obviously not a good, not a good platform. I'm sure, but just there. just I you know I think when you when you introduce religion into the abortion topic. I think you're going about it the wrong way. Yes. I think, uh, you know, uh, but I'm not, I'm not saying you shouldn't argue abortion. No, I believe. I'm just pointing, I'm just pointing out an abortion as like the easiest topic to point to there. It's not that that's the only topic that people that are religious care about. That's just the easiest one to to immediately catch. I would say it's the biggest though, for sure. I mean, for some, well, what other topics are there that are, that are affected by religion? Abortion, obviously I would say the, the biggest one. Sure. Education. Education. How is, how is, where, where are we talking about creationist person versus evolution? Yes. That, that's part of it for sure. I, I, it, you, also have, you also have the division of uh, when they, they stopped doing the Pledge of Allegiance before classes started, you could say. Yeah, so any anything uh, prayer in school. Prayer was another big one. So um, I would say that a general approach towards law enforcement and the the way that we view criminals is often informed by religious views. Give me a, I'm not really give me an example of that familiar with that one. Yeah. So you have to the, the two main views on how to enforce laws and everything it, it really it's on the punishment side of crime. Like we're not going to argue about whether one thing or another should be crime. But once once someone is caught and convicted as a criminal do we look at the role of the criminal justice system as a punitive role of you did something bad and now you must suffer because of it, or you did something bad and we should try and find a way of correcting the harms that you did and helping educate you and reintroduce you to society in, in a manner in which you can contribute and in a narrow focus, I see what you're saying, James, but I think it, it's criminal justice reform too, and sort of how we, how we imprison people in this country too. I right. Know. So it's really, is it retribution or restoration? If you have to boil it down is you get caught by, you caught, you get caught doing something bad. Should justice be retributive or restorative? <laughs> yeah. Well, I think, I think the way that we've looked at it is retributive and I kind of feel in this that country. Way. Yeah. You, yeah. Yeah. I, sure. I, it's difficult to look at it any other way when, when justice is really a punishment. Right, but it doesn't have to be that way. You can, you can have elements of punishment, but also elements of restoration of helping somebody not be the person that they were when they committed the crime. And how do you deter people from committing crimes? If you just commit a crime and then the solution, is, the punishment is will make well, how you, about you have a, How about you have a balance of both? Right. That, that would be the argument. We can also restore and, and teach them to be better when they leave the system because most people who get into the system have a very hard time ever getting out of it, even when they are out of, let's say, jail or, or, or to that effect. So, I, you know, to me, once you're in it, it's really tough to get out. Um, but where, do, where does religion fall on this? Um, depending on your religious views, you can look at crime as being a moral failing that must be punished. 
or you can look at it as an opportunity to bring somebody back into the fold. And this one doesn't break down squarely on religious lines in terms of like one religion believes one thing. I'd say that this is one where within a religion, you'll see tremendous differences, but it's going to be probably more along the lines of like how orthodox and how conservative are you within the religion? Well, I, but how do we just, I, I mean, my thinking is we really need to remove religion from politics and from the legal system. Can I ask and, how you would do that then? I, I'm really kind of curious because I've never seen an actual real idea to that. It sounds great on paper and I don't mean to push the Well, the, democracy but, accounts for religion in an interesting way. Right? It does, but but let's look at because because look at the different religions that we have in this country. So, but there's one you're, voting block we're all dancing around here. But it's the Christian evangelicals that are out there that really support a big, big, big base of a major party. Well, with such country. low voter turnout, the only people that are making any decisions in this country are the loudest people. Correct. Which, you know, like somebody stubs a toe and screams about it, and now we have to take the fucking chairs out of the office because they stub their toe in a chair right versus nobody else has a fucking issue with it but they cry about it for a week so maybe then that so question comes to weird example but, but that's exactly what's going on you have people that are being evicted because they're not paying rent so now they're trying to cancel the rent but it doesn't even make sense right so you, it's it's this kind of loudest majority uh, which i don't believe is you know i think that's why democracy is such bullshit these days is because there's so many people who are fully unengaged. And I think for democracy to really work, we need to incorporate technology and a super high level of cybersecurity. Um, yeah, I don't know exactly how to do that, but... Well, I think to well, uh, help answer your question, to piggyback up what you're saying, to help you on this, you could easily restructure how voting is done in this country. Does anyone in this room know how an absentee ballot works? Because it's an incredibly complicated thing, and we all deal with paperwork every day as a brokerage. And I will tell you that it's complicated even to me to some degree. So if it's complicated to me, who's dealing with papers all day long, making sure things get sent out, signed, and envelopes have to be properly sealed, and a postage, and so on and so forth, it's almost like a deterrence to even want to but, vote to begin. But we're though. using. But we're using my problem when I was when I was. I, you know, the last uh, election, I was still in the Marine Corps, and I had to do an absentee ballot in order to vote because I wasn't able to get home to vote for the mm -hmm. election. And after I started looking at the process and seeing how it was, I just I got really turned off really quickly on how much little time I had to do it versus the, the time that it was going to take me to do it. I just I ended up but, doing it. But if you're mailing something in a paper, like I can, if you're if you're live right now, when was the last time you actually mailed something? People come to me asking for stamps like they don't know what they are. They wouldn't recognize them if they saw them, right? Like, like we have 100 people here that can't send a fax. I go, oh, you just fax it from the fax machine. They're like, what is it? How do I do that? How do you mean? So we're using, we're using technology that is, we're using technology that is, is so antiquated when, like, well, the problem comes in is they're they're afraid of using this technology right now because they don't have a way to properly secure it. Right. Well, you but, know, I mean, but we can but we can fly we can fly to the moon and we put satellite. We're, we're not focusing our energy on the on the right stuff. I mean, if you look at it, it's the same way with the courts right now. That's why that's why they're just slowly integrating electronic e-filing and doing cases through the internet well, because there's no real good security that they cannot promise to not get. So why don't we just micro microchip everybody? You might well, somebody that can go to the polls, scan over. Red the, the answer to all of these questions is going to, like, why is it so difficult to file an absentee ballot? Why, why would somebody who wants to vote give up halfway through the process of filing an absentee ballot? Why don't we have better election security? Why is it that we have all these inefficient processes in courts or voting or you name it? And the answer for each one of those is going to be the same. Oh, fucking eight. Sorry. Hang on, James. Hang on. Hang on. Hang on. You can get two glasses over here, by the way. Hang on, James. Are you, are you there? You say something? Yeah, me? Yeah, I just I yeah I was in the middle of, I was in the middle of a thought and you interrupted me so <laughs> well you interrupted yourself. There was a twenty second delay that just just got turned on. Um, so you, 20 seconds ago, was really who interrupted you. 
Well, let me, let me have it out with 20 seconds ago me. But. You should have had the forethought. You should have 40 seconds Should have had the forethought on that one. Yeah, the so, problem, Jay, your point. Is, the answer, to answer all of these is that there's not an economic incentive to do so. So, like, for so to process absentee ballots, um, right now, I'd say that there's a pretty big divide between the two political parties in terms of which party wants to have more people included in the vote. And so for, for one party, having more people vote is not something that real, they see as beneficial to them. So they, they're the ones who are making it more difficult to vote. And the, the economic incentive to make voting as difficult and as onerous as possible exists. And so what you'll see is in in states, I'm just going to go out and say it, the Republicans have, have a consistent history of trying to make it more difficult to vote for the general populace. I'm, however, I'm agree with that with evidence, but however I, I can provide the evidence. I'm, I'm, I'm very happy to. Um, much, I agree with you. I have the evidence. As well. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, but what you'll see is that in the places where it is more economically, and I'm not talking dollar and cents wise, I'm saying where they have the incentive to get people to vote, they make it easier to vote. So in Republican, in, in, in geographic areas where people are more likely to vote Republican, the GOP makes it easier for people to vote. Um, and so when it comes to an individual's choice as to whether or not to participate in the vote, now, what, what do you get out of voting? Uh, a, a say in what happens with the, with government policy. Do you really feel that way? No. Well, it depends, <laughs> but it also depends on where you live. No. When yeah. I lived okay. in, when I lived in South Carolina, I voted, and our county uh, swung the other way, basically from the rest of the state, but pretty progressive county that, that we were in. In New York City, I'm, I'm much less interested in voting because you know I know the most part the way things are going. But also my vote, you know, politically, I'm changing quite a bit because I really think there's a lot of really crazy, shitty policies, a lot of really shitty legislation that's in the pipeline. So, uh, it, it, you know, it's, it's really affecting. I, I may start voting in a different direction in a real and I don't usually get too deep when it comes to local politics. I may vote for mayor, for governor. Um, you know, it really depends on what, what seat is up. I don't go too deep. Like, I'm not voting for the you know, education. Committee. So local politics is where your vote actually carries the most That's where I always make sure weight. I um, but if you, think, if you think about it for the presidential election. So I live in South Carolina. You all live in New York. And I think that both of our states are good examples of for presidential politics where our votes don't matter. Like, if you live in New York, right now, the political futures markets, which I trust more than any poll, because those are markets where people will place actual monetary bets on contracts that will pay out based on a political result. Right. So right now, the political futures market predicts Biden with a 93% chance to win New York. And South Carolina, Trump has a 90% chance to win South Carolina. That's people putting real money behind a result. So when you look at it and say, there's a 93% chance. Just to curiosity, I'm curious if the Senate race that's going on in your state is also the same. Um, I can get that information for you almost immediately. So right now, 71% chance, according to the political futures markets. There's less liquidity in the Senate races. But um, if you live in New York and you say, there's a 93% chance that Biden wins, then what does your vote matter? And if you're a Republican, what does your vote matter? Because Biden's going to win New York regardless. It's, and we don't, the national, the, the popular vote on the national level doesn't matter. So if you're a Republican or a Democrat in New York state, what does it matter? And the opposite is true in South Carolina of if you're a Republican or a Democrat, Trump's going to take the state with a 90% chance. So what does your vote matter? That, like, what does one vote in a state that's over 90% likely to go one way or the other, why does it matter? Um, so if I were to go out and vote, if I were to go in person and vote in a month, two months, no, like five weeks. Yeah. Yeah, five, in five, yeah, I can't do math. So if I were to go out and vote in five weeks and 
it's on a Tuesday. I work on Tuesdays. So I don't know what my company's policy is in terms of whether or not I could get paid for the time that it would take me to vote. But during the 2018 election, I drove down to my polling place and the line was easily 150 people deep, probably longer. So I, I would expect that it would be worse this year because turnout's higher in presidential years than, than mid-cycle elections. So even if it was 200 people deep, if every person takes, let's just be charitable and say two minutes to vote. Now I have to wait two minutes times 240 people in front of me. That's four hours. I have to wait four hours standing in line when I may or may not be getting paid. And also with whole coronavirus and stuff, I'm not personally too concerned if I were to catch it. I think I'd be fine. I don't want to get it. I don't want to infect others. But of, no, uh, in, in terms of my risk profile versus other people in the population, my risk profile is way lower. So if you've got somebody who is afraid of going out in public in gr large gatherings or whatever because they don't want to catch COVID because they might have some kind of underlying condition, then you're, you're telling me I'm going to have to give up. If I'm an hourly worker, I have to give up on – four plus hours of my hourly pay, piss off my employer, risk being in COVID, all to cast a vote in something that I may care about, but realistically and deep down I know my vote's not going to have any effect on which direction my state goes. There, a couple of things. Your state was just ruled by the Supreme Court of South Carolina that everyone will have access to a mail-in ballot. Additionally, um, I can't imagine the lines are going to be longer than 2018 just due to the fact, and maybe they're almost matching it, but more people plan to vote by mail at this point across the country than in person. James, when was the last time you placed something outgoing in the mail? Um, I, are we talking about when I'm at work or in my personal life? Your personal life. Personal life, it's been a while. Okay. Anybody in here, when was the last time you placed something outgoing in the mailbox? Last month. June of 2014. Okay. 2019. 2018. Okay. Like people don't even know how to mail shit. I don't even remember. Uh, which I just think, I think that this isn't something that people do. I just, to me, we're talking about mail in ballots, and we, I feel like we might as well be talking about smoke signals. Like, yeah, you know, I just signal over there, and it's, it's, it's smoke signals. Uh, it, it's just, it's the fact that we're mailing in ballots to me doesn't. And I'm not saying, you know, somebody's going to come and sweep the post office and steal all the fucking ballots from the Democratic or the Republican state. No, states. we already but, had someone who debunked and destroyed the mail sorting machines. But I just, I just think the fact that, like, we're mailing in ballots in 2020 and we can teleport now, it doesn't even make sense. Well, yeah, but I, I, I just want to finish up this thought about the whole economics of everything, where, like, people feel that their vote doesn't really matter. And depending on where you live, they, that people may very well be correct. If you live in New York or California or South Carolina or Idaho or any of these states that are heavily tilted one direction or the other, then your vote in a national race doesn't really matter. So the only reason you'd be voting is for the ideological uh, um, purpose of saying, like, of, of the act itself has value, that I vote, therefore the vote matters. But from a realistic perspective, the chances that your vote matters are, are virtually zero. So to have to go through the, the headache of either having to fill out the absentee ballots and everything and, and making sure that you're doing everything right and the time that's invested there or the time that's invested to drive to wherever your polling location is and wait in line for however long, possibly or likely missing work, all to do something that you know is a fundamentally meaningless act. Why do that? I mean, look, I, 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 I'll, I'll be real. Like I studied political science in college and I, I've been working on political campaigns since I was 15 years old. So I, I feel like it's kind of like a duty of myself that I, I want to participate in every election. I do agree with you, James, that like voting on the local level is probably the most impactful vote you'll have outside of any other vote that you cast. We but it's also the one that people are least interested in. And that's what's so funny, isn't it? Because if you want to make sure, like the other day I was driving around uh, in, a, in a very nice part of the North Shore of Long Island, really gorgeous area, but clearly these, these 
people that live there don't care very much about the local officials because the road is shit. It was absolute shit. This is what local officials do. They fix potholes on roads. They make sure there's stop signs where there should, where there aren't. They make sure that you have a good community or a neighborhood watch or you have yeah, local policing, local education. Exactly. Instead, people care about, you know, these two figures on a national stage that let's be honest, I'd like, I'd like to hear feedback from people who are listening live right now. How much, how much has actually directly affected you as an individual on a national level from a president of the United States on almost anything? Truthfully. Actually, I mean, as a veteran, Trump did a lot for me. Okay. As, as, as from the VA standpoint. And, you know, I don't, I don't agree with everything, obviously, that the man says and or does, but I can honestly say coming from that standpoint that, I mean, his VA reform was huge and it affected and helped so many people that ultimately that guy but that was that was that. his a lot of his voter base yeah right and you know I'm, we're not we're not saying you know we're not we're not really talking about our current the people that are running right now but but that's a that's a really good point um, sure but i mean in general like like directly affecting you well that's a direct local effect. i would say that I, yeah. I, I'm going to say that the, the tax bill that was passed at the end of 2017. <laughs> yeah, I the question to hear it. The tax bill that was passed at the end of 2017 that took effect for 2018 taxes and is still in effect now, I think that's one that has affected almost everybody. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's affected everybody both in terms of the tax rates that they pay and the type of deductions and everything that are available, but it's also sure. going to have a huge effect on people long-term in terms of its long-term effect on the national debt. So that's one where you might not feel the effects of the tax bill directly. Maybe your taxes didn't change all that much or anything. But over time, it's an impact on the national debt is something that everyone's going to have to deal with. Yes. So sure. that's, one, that, that's, that's one with an exclamation point. I would also say that the, the approach to health care in this country, while not much has changed during Trump's presidency, that's not for lack of trying. And for anybody who, is, who has a pre-existing condition that was able to get care through the, the Patient Protection Act in 2010, that would probably lose coverage if, that, if the law were repealed or invalidated in some way. That would be a huge effect on upwards of 25 million people. I heard closer almost to, to 40. Okay, I'll go with that number. But, but the, the crazy part is, and I, I can personally touch on the, the pre-existing condition factor, my uncle um, needed a liver transplant, and his insurance uh, tried to drop him. And luckily, Obamacare was passed during the months that was the dispute for him to get on a donor list because their insurance refused to cover it, um, which would have cost him somewhere near the realm of a half a million dollars. Yep. Uh, at that point, he was preparing himself to pass away. Uh, but when the pre-existing conditions law came into effect, he was able to get not only one, but two insurance companies to come together and be able to cover his cost of surgery. Now, I just want to point out, this is somebody who uh, is well off in his life. He, he you know, has good money. So it's not that he's, he's on a low-income situation. And money can't buy you everything unfortunately. And that law is the reason why I'm still able to see my uncle at Christmas and at Thanksgivings and birthdays and still be able to talk to him, you know, every couple of weeks and check in and make sure he's okay. And he's living a great life in his new marriage. But that is something that I can tell you right now. I'm sure we'll hear it tonight in the debate. I'm sure it'll come up when we have a six to three vote in the uh, Supreme Court. But that's a vote that's literally about to happen on the ACA on the 10th of November. Well, well, the, how is religion affecting healthcare? Ooh, good question. I don't. Do well, you guys have any idea on that? I'm not really sure how religion directly impacts it. I haven't. I haven't thought about that. Um, churches we, in hospitals. If we, yeah. If we. I mean, if we want to talk about what a religious belief would be, I mean, I go to a Catholic college, and I mean, you know, it's all about helping your neighbor you know, regardless of the outcome. And I mean, if you ask someone that's very, very religious about it, I mean, it's almost like you can't turn them away. You know, no matter sure, what. Sure, or you take like a St. Jude's or something, which is a effectively a 
assume I was. I mean, most of, the, most of the hospitals, even in, in New York City, are, are based off of religion. The religious oh, hospitals, you got LIJ, New York uh, Presbyterian. New York Presbyterian. I mean, they're, they're all very <laughs> religious. But, uh, but are they, I don't, I don't understand the hospital affiliation with religion, just because you name something after St. Jude, you know, like. They have very, I mean, they're still, they're still run by religious leaders. No, they're, they're funded by this. And they're funded through. Through, I'm, I'm, if I'm not mistaken, they're, they're funded through the diocese. So then that, I mean, they, they don't, they, they, they get their money what, from. Then how does that affect them? They don't do abortions and they, they. Well, yes, some hospitals, yeah, there's certain Catholic hospitals that won't do certain procedures. Um, uh, based on religion. Um, and, and that's a major point of contention with the Patient Protection Act because some hospitals feel that they're obligated by the, the law to, to do procedures that they are morally opposed to. Um, but when it comes to the funding of healthcare and everything, so like in your uncle's situation before the law, if you think about it from the insurance company's perspective, why in the world would they want to fund that? I'm not trying to be insensitive here. I'm trying to say, like, if I'm the insurance company, why would I want to spend a half million dollars if I don't have to? You're right. Yeah, well, you got a second insurance company, too. So they, they kind of split. But the even still, if I'm two insurance companies, I don't want to spend $250,000 that I might not have to. Yeah, and, I'm, and what I'm saying is I'm not defending that behavior. I think that it's wrong. What I'm saying is we have a system currently set up where we're, we're pitting two very different goals against each other that probably – shouldn't be in opposition one is like you've got insurance companies and hospitals and doctor's offices and the entire healthcare system is run for profit and you look at it as is that something that really like health and public health are what i would term a social good where 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 everybody where where if everybody's healthy everybody benefits it, it's one of these ones where it's not just the individual who's receiving the health care that benefits everybody in society benefits along with it and so most social goods that we see in this country are are either government run or nonprofit another it, it, easy example is education where education is a social good where not only is it good for the student who's getting the public education for free, but it's also good for society in general because having more educated people makes everything better. And I would make the same argument as far as healthcare goes, that not only is it good for you to get treatment for, or your uncle to get treatment for his, his liver problem, but it's good for everybody. Because if your uncle lives longer, he's going to be able to continue to work and continue to produce for society and continue to benefit everybody around him but let, so me, let me let me ask this though when you when you have when when the healthcare system is fully privatized prices we would assume prices would go up right yes okay and then you have the government who's playing a hand in things to help bring prices down regulate things do you know if we have a fully government-run healthcare system we assume we would have very low prices probably not great service right well, you look at the Canadian side of things. Well, hang on, hang on. But, but would you agree with that? Uh, can I clarify on understanding what you're trying to say? So I'm just, I'm, I'm saying, saying right now we have option, or are you saying only government is? Well, I'm saying, I'm saying we'll go from one side to the other. So you have it's so either fully private or fully government, yeah. no in between. I think any extremity on a position is bullshit. So that's my opinion. Okay, that's, I'm serious. Yeah, I, someone said, "What about people who have no option?" Then they're going to die. I would say I would say that you can make a really good comparison between healthcare and education in this country. Where if you want to, let me stick to one thing. No, no, no. Let me just. I want to build a framework here, and then we can get back to healthcare. So, with education, we have a public school system where anybody can go to school, and you'll get some baseline level of education. Now, it's going to vary depending on where you live, and there's some problems with that system. But the general idea is that you can go to public school, and you're going to get a minimum level of education. And that's just covered by, by taxes. Sure. And if you want to go to a different kind of school, religious or some kind of elite boarding school or prep school or whatever, you can pay extra for that. And if you feel that the extra money that you're spending gives you more value in terms of your education, you can do that. And so, and that's, but that's a good system for education. 
I don't see why it wouldn't be a good system for healthcare. Well, let's put, let's there's put some it, let's base put level in the perspective. Let's put it in the perspective of housing. Okay, every apparently in the U.S., everybody deserves a base level of housing. But if you've been to public housing, like I know people that won't even walk through public housing. They're fucking terrified of it. That's so true. it's not like you could pay a little bit more for private housing. You have to pay a lot more for private housing. But that's and those two are not super intertwined. Now, what I'm saying, if we take this to healthcare, and you've got this, because it doesn't work. It's not. They're not parallels. I don't think. You think about you think about private roads and public roads, and then you think about uh, you know they build a bridge and they put up a toll booth to pay off the, co the to, you know to pay off the cost of building the bridge. But then that toll booth never goes away, right. and it becomes a money maker for the government. So, you know, my, my concern is it doesn't play out the same across, it's not a, it's not a parallel healthcare to schooling, to housing, to, you know, to, to roads. Well, I think the, the, the difference between all of those different things is purely an implementation. I would say, okay. Yeah. Oh, you need so, to explain that. Well, it's that... <laughs> <laughs> the system can either work or not work, depending on how you design it. So the system is always set up on paper to be perfect. Right. However, you have those who abuse the system, which then turn around and take a lot of the funding from it that don't actually need it. Or they need it at one point in time, got used to it, and then feel like they can't live without it. They don't push to be farther. I mean... For instance, I mean, if you want to go into like stuff like welfare and food stamps, I worked at uh, I worked at a place one time where we had an employee instead of asking my manager for more hours, in fact, asked to reduce her hours just so she can maintain her food stamps and maintain the level of food stamps she's receiving. Okay, so what you're describing is not a system that's designed to be perfect. No, it's, on paper though, it's designed to be perfect. It's designed to help somebody get off of it. It's never meant to be lived on. Right. But you have those that abuse a system that say, you know, and this ends up happening for generations because it's what they're taught. I mean, I, I, was, I was born and raised on the south side of Chicago, so I can tell you from experience that I've seen this generational thing where it, you never really have that push from your family to get out of it because there's always the fallback of the government's going to take care of us, don't worry about it. You know, and right. at that level, you, you grow up in the projects, you grow up in, in, in public housing, so you don't have that worry about living there because you grew up there. And then, you know, that goes into, that goes into the, the criminal justice system because the majority of us, you know, we don't, we don't believe we're going to live past the age of 21. We believe we're going to be institutionalized or we're going to be in a grave. All right. You know, so I'm, let me rephrase, let me refine your, your statement about system design. Cause I think, I think if, when you hear this, it'll make a lot of sense. One of my favorite phrases ever. Every system is perfectly designed to achieve the exact results that it gets. I would agree with that. Well, you can't. It's a tautology. But yeah. if you think about it, if you have a problem with the results of a system, you can't get mad at the people that are participating in it. You have to look at the design of the system and say, it's giving us a result. It's designed to give. So if you say that you've got people that are not looking to push themselves out of public housing or not looking to work harder to get out of public assistance or whatever, then that means that the system is designed in such a way that the incentives line up for someone to not want to leave it. Well, and so you have to redesign the system. It's, it, the system's not perfect on paper if it's getting imperfect results. So I, I have a former colleague who is from India and she hates the system that we have in the US. What, because, what part? Uh, well, she felt that in India, failure is an option and you will live a short life and you will live on the streets. Here in the U.S., failure is you get a house, you get a cell phone, you get food. So she thinks that's like an absolute terrible system because what you know if it's a you know it's it's a it's a difficult step to take from this level where you're super broke, you're super poor, you have no education to being on your own. Because because that's a large step to be out of poverty, out of this level where you're getting food stamps, where you're getting housing, where you're getting a phone or you know whatever. Can, can it might be. Whereas whereas sorry, no, just let me wait, finish. Wait, wait, wait. Whereas in India, you either can afford housing or you live in the street, 
you probably can't afford food and then you live a short life and probably die. So you push, you push so hard to reach that step. Whereas here, that large step it is subsidized by the government. So you're not falling quite as far. You don't have to try nearly as hard. Uh, and, and, and she, I think she has a lot of kind of disdain for the U.S. system that doesn't let people fail. And there's really no implications of not trying hard. Okay. So, so I have, the, the reason that I feel like you can't compare the U.S. to India is because of the caste system. All right. In India, yeah, you can never, you can never, you can, if, if, if you were born into a certain level, you can never achieve pass. In the United States, we actually have the luxury of achieving pass. But, but in, in 2020, in India, you, you can still put food on the table. And, and yes, but it's a lot easier for those who were born into it. And anybody that's, anybody that's from India, I, mean, I, I have friends that are from India. I worked for an Indian guy that came here from India, and they'll, they'll all tell you the same thing. There's that caste system there. Whether they want to admit it or not, it's always going to be there. It's going to be there because it's a whole different type of country we're talking about. The United States, you can, if you put forth the effort and, it, and, and you put forth the time and hard work, you can achieve more. There's multiple jobs. You can work multiple jobs. Is it the most ideal situation for most people? No, because they want to be home with their family. They don't want to be spending time away. However, I can tell you because my father-in-law came from Mexico, right? He spent, I mean, his, my, my wife and his other, my, my in-laws, entire, entire childhood away from them, working construction, breaking it, you know, breaking his back, doing as much as he possibly could to bring in as much money as he could to where now he's living very well off because he put in that hard work and he set up that foundation for them to be able to go farther. He came to this country to do that and they, it gave him the opportunity. He just recently got his green card. So this was done by somebody that wasn't even an American citizen. But yet you have citizens here that live off the system that feel that they have to. He rented a room. He lived in a room with my wife when she was a baby and, and his wife. And they, they made that life for themselves. But you have people here that are born here that are born into poverty that just refuse to do anything else. They take the easy route. I'm gonna I'm gonna sling some dope on the side to make some money. I almost don't know if it's the easy route though, because I almost don't know what's better. But there's a stepping stone here that everybody else has. And it's not just a stepping stone, it can also be also be the foundation for your life. So stepping stone versus foundation for your life are two wildly you know listen to this. We live in New York City. New York City gives you a free associate's degree right mm -hmm. you don't have to pay for it that's free but how many people choose not to take advantage of that program you know what i'm saying mm -hmm. and, and i talk to it a lot and i talked to my marines about it before you know don't don't waste your time or your effort on wasting your gi bill or wasting your money on going to this fab fabulous school for undergrad if you have plans on getting a doctorate or getting a master's degree because that's where it really matters. Sure. You know, but people take advantage of, uh, don't take advantage of the fact that they can get a free associate's degree. Um, one thing, I wish we had a Jamie from like the Joe Rogan podcast here. We can have look up this data, but I looked it up on my phone. Just so we are on the same page, according to census data, India has a 15% homeless rate in the entire country. 15% of the country is homeless. That's a 2011 mm -hmm. census data information. I'm sure it's been only higher considering the growth of income disparity throughout well, the world. But I'll bet so, you in uh, nine years, more, more of them have smartphones. In India. Okay. In India. Uh, not America. No, I'm talking about India. So my whole point is, is that that may be a, a great concept when it's poetically spoken about and with her, you know, righteous attitude. But I will also say that, you know, when, when you have 15% of a population. You said 15, one, five? One, five. Okay, so here, let me give you the statistic for the United States. Go ahead. Point two. Point two. Point two. Not two percent. Zero point two percent. Point two percent. So thirty times lower. But no, I'm sorry. No, seventy-five times lower. But they're, but they're both extreme. They're both extremities. Like the, neither one is good. I'm just saying but that point two is pretty good. Percent is, is millions of people that are that are literally living homeless on the streets, and let's be honest, India is not a doesn't have any kind of interchangeable season. It's a hundred and fucking ten degrees every goddamn well, they day. Have the season where the asphalt melts. Yeah, well, hang on. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. When the streets become liquid magma, the first yeah. six months out of the year, 
you know, I, I, I can't sit here and be like, that's also a righteous way to live as a country because India's always struggled with their caste system and the way they treat most of their people because it's next to impossible to get above the lower income. They keep people down for a reason. I said, All right, no, hold on, Adam. Uh, India's, it, it's not... 15%, it's 0.15%. I will show you right now, 15%. About we confusing percentages with... No, 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 I, I just Googled it, 0.15%, which I'm is still seven, as seven as times higher. Seven times higher. As of when? I, I uh, by a factor of 10. Well, no, but look, just, look at the article. This is dated from August 13, 2020. Hold on. I'm just going to link it in the chat. I think it also... Numbers and numbers. Just society demographic. All right, Justin, pop open the link that I just put in chat. It's higher where? In India or the U.S.? It's higher in India. Yeah. But it's not higher by 75 times. It's higher by about seven and a half times. country that has the second largest population. Almost is. All right. Let's see. Do a quick share screen yeah, here. So that like there are 1.77 million homeless people in India, or 0.15% of the population. I'm reading about 15%. I I'm not like I'm not trying to make it up. This is what I'm looking at. On homeless is a major issue in India. The Look, Universal Declaration <laughs> of Human Rights yeah, defines homelessness. That's great. Right in the point. middle of the first paragraph. Okay. We can't use Wikipedia. Okay, there are 1.77 million homeless people in India. I see. Yeah. Or 0.15 of the population of the country. So, okay, uh, James, can you on your screen figure out what the total population of India is? 1.35 billion. 1.35 million. Can you do that math? 1.77 million divided by 1.3 billion. This is why we need a researcher. I agree. It would be nice. It would be very nice to have a researcher here. I guess you answer. Uh, it's it's difficult <laughs> enough. It's difficult enough to have people show up on time. Yeah, it's uh, about point. I love working with Justin. It's, everybody. A, it's, it's about what? Yeah, it comes out to about 0.15 percent. Look, like. And the thing okay. is, we can, we can, I, let me go to the direct source if you guys want to argue about this. I'm not, I'm not arguing. No, it's, right. like, oh, it's not, it's not 15%. It's not 15%. No. It's it's point point one, it's so here, here, here's the, here's the important question that we need to answer. And this is one where. They, I can see how they could make that mistake though. Yeah, yeah. So I, I can see how they could make that mistake. Not 15%, but 0.15%. Right. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's fine. For like, every, for every yeah. hundred people that you know. One in 1,000. Guys, I understand how math homeless. works. Thank you. I, I, okay. I, I, okay. Anyways, yeah. moving on. Okay. The question that we have to answer here is even, even at 0.15%, that's seven times higher than the United States. And the question is, in regards to your, your friend from India that looks at the United States system as too soft or whatever, the question is, as a society, how comfortable are we leaving a portion of the population behind? is how do we care for the people in our society that are most vulnerable? What level of care do we show to the people that might not be able to help themselves? Oh, I mean, I think we show a pretty good thing. I mean, if you walk down 30, West 35th Avenue right now, I can show a couple crackheads with heroin acts down there that don't really care if they live in a house or in a cardboard box. I mean, they're going to be counted as homeless. Sure, but, right. but, what, if you, but what if you provided, you're going to think about today, and I, it's never what happened, I don't know if it's a good idea, well, what if you provided certain services for a certain amount of time, and then there was a hard cutoff, and then you just live under a bridge after that? Is that is that? I'm not saying that's what we should do. What I'm saying is that is that a reasonable thing? Is you give people? That's exactly how the homeless shelters work. That's how homeless shelters work. What I'm saying is, what I'm saying is, you give food stamps. You give food stamps for a certain amount of time. You give housing vouchers for a certain amount of time. You this is that for a certain amount of time, and then you cut it off. Well, that's the whole. That's kind of how they work, okay. actually. But that's, but, that's but there's a harder cutoff, and but you have people that live lifetime on on government programs. No, that's no, what, that's, that's what people so, are fighting to get this reform of the welfare system because they want people to you know have to take drug tests and do everything else, so you don't have that generational. Yeah. So when you put drug tests in there and things like that. Um, you know, drugs should be only for rich people that are paying their own bills. Um, but but you see, you see where I'm going with this, though. That, that I do. I, I guess is that a good idea? And then what's the counter argument for that? I don't know. Oh. It's just a thought that went through my head, James. Yeah, I'll give you the counter argument. Thank you. Is at the very most, you should do a phase out, and it's something that should be designed up front. But 
like first of all the whole uh, the whole idea of drug testing people that are getting help i think is pretty callous because like you you if you've got somebody that's going through something that genuinely is trying to fix themselves now you're asking them to tackle two problems at the same time which is one your life probably sucks right now and you don't have a job you don't have income you don't really have stable housing or whatever else we're giving you help to try and tackle one of those problems and that's a significant undertaking by itself now asking them to forego what what may have been the only thing keeping them going yes i think we should give them a menial part-time job to help them cover the expenses while they're on heroin no it's i, like, I want my wanna... starbucks i want my starbucks people going oh, well, i don't really necessarily agree with that point because but, I'll, 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 no 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 let me hear me out you're 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 james brought up a good point though did, that i didn't that i hadn't thought about because, because if sorry, i was if I was broke, you're actively wrong. How right here, 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 actively I mean, wrong. how many, how many, the three of you. Well, you're not passively wrong. How many of you have lived in low income housing? I always wanted to when I was younger. Right? A lot of those small buildings. Yeah, because I, I did. A good view. I did. And I'm telling you right now that a lot of the people that live in low income housing end up a product mm -hmm. of their environment. Right? So you end up using drugs, you end up drinking. I mean, I started drinking at the age of 13. So, but should the government discourage that? No, that's the, the thing, is they should. And I'm talking as a person that came from it, mm -hmm. right? You know, yeah, I didn't get the, the most, you know, prestigious path. I didn't have my parents pay for my cars and send me to the university and everything else. But I joined the Marine Corps so I can do that for myself. And I understand there's people out there that catch cases at young ages that aren't able to join the military, but there are still options for them out there. And I'm going to tell you like this because, you know, I came from two different states and I seen how the systems worked on both sides. You know, when I went to file unemployment in Indiana, they pretty much just gave me the money and told me to go find a job. However, when I filed for unemployment in New York, they made me show them that I was actively looking for a job. Mm -hmm. They made me come in and do workshops with them. And they sent me places. And if they were, they were willing to do a job interview for me, I had to go to that job interview. Mm -hmm. So there, I think that if we're going to really take this and you know, reconstruct it at a federal level, that every state has to be the same. Because you know, we're looking at it from the certain states that we all live in and we have lived in. You know, I've had the benefit of living in Virginia, New York, and uh, Indiana, along with Illinois. So I've seen it on a little bit of, of different basis and in different views, but everybody has to be on the same page because if they're not, and I'm all for, you know, federal government staying out of state government business, but there's certain programs and there's certain things that need to be done on a federal level. So we don't have those issues and welfare in, in, in those government provided services need to be at a federal level. So everybody's on the same page. So everybody right. gets those same, you know, um, so here, here, let me boil this down again. Like the, the argument that we're having here is the difference between forbidding or actively punishing behavior versus finding ways of encouraging or incentivizing change. Sure. But just back to the criminal justice, you know, the criminal, uh, you know, are, are we, yeah. Are we punishing people or are we reforming So, so here, I, I think I got a, a better question for you, for you all here. And I, I would love to hear what you, which you have to say because I come from a different area, right? So I have a friend, I won't name her name. All right. She, she has a name. She has a name. I'm just not gonna say it. <laughs> We're gonna call her Crystal. Crystal. Okay. <laughs> so you so your stripper friend. Yeah, okay. So so I grew up with her, right? Now she committed murder. All right. Now what happened was was as a product of her environment, she was involved in, in a gang, and a rival gang member came up to kill one of her best friends. She pulled out a gun, shot him, he died. Okay. Right? Now. Okay, what was the cause of death? Murder? Murder. Okay. Okay. But here's the thing. No, it was gunshot. The only, the only reason, the only reason that she did this is because of the environment that she lived in, grew up in, and things of that nature, right? right. Now, do you think that she should be hit with a book, or do you think that she should be given a chance at reform? That's a that's a great position to. Well, that's that's the it. that's the central debate of our criminal justice system. <clears throat> it, that's exactly that's that's, that's, that's what we're trying to to. But this is a specific story. So, 
in this exact situation. But, so here, but here's how I but here's how I think a lot of politics need to happen is we need to be looking at specific issues per the specific issue. Okay. We can't be setting these grandiose across the board things, you know, like just even But that's how laws are written. You can't you can't write a law for every specific situation. And that's the right. problem with what we have going on politically. You so, can you can write laws that allow for certain situations, just like the Constitution has allowed for amendments based off certain situations. And there's also a lot of gray area in the Constitution once you break something down to particular instance. Was gray area involved so, period, otherwise. Yeah, I mean, there's always so, going to be that. But that's why I think we need to have, just like when it comes to police, you know, if, if police don't have any, you know, they let somebody drive five miles an hour, they let somebody drive 10 miles an hour over, they let somebody drive 20 miles an hour over, somebody's doing 90 out of 55, they're okay with that. Somebody's, you know, because, I don't know, maybe traffic's going 80 in, in the 90 miles. But then somebody whips by and there's no traffic and they're doing 90, and they catch the 90, and they pull that guy over. And he's like, well, you let the other guy go the 90. I don't know what we say to that. But that's what fishing? But, sometimes you catch a big fish, sometimes you catch a little fish. But that's what I'm saying is that's that saying. these per-instance things, and th that person goes, well, I can't record. Everybody's doing you know, the speed. What I'm saying is that we need to pay attention to particular instances and but I'm curious to what you it's very difficult to write situation. it's very difficult to write laws around around the stuff you know the judge needs to be that's a problem with having a 94 year old judge right right no, is, no, there, I mean, is there out of touch with, with what's going on and uh but hey, well, look at the, the average age of most politicians everyone's above 50 years old in Congress alone I mean it's the only oh, are two presidential candidates yeah, exactly. Yeah. The reason I asked this specific question, though, is because it goes, there's a religious point of view of it, and then there's a non-religious point of view of it. And that's why I asked what you three would do in this specific situation. Would you throw the book at her, or would you say that she needs to go spend her time for the crime she committed, but also be, you know, rehabilitated to come back to society? Well, I mean, I think I think at the very least, we, we there's like we're not comparing that to like she gets a pat on the back, like, oh, you know, it's a tough situation. You made a tough move, but like it's okay. But there's people that would say that she needs to be locked it's, up for the rest of her life and or face death because she committed murder. Well, and then there's religious people that would say, "Hey, you know what? She committed a sin. However, you know God forgives, so we need to have her spend some time in jail, but also allow her." And to then there's non-religious people that look at it also the same way. So, yeah, I so agree. You can, you can, I, you, I don't know. It's I don't think religion plays into this one. I don't. Th I don't think religion. I mean, you can well. use religion to play into it, but I don't think I don't think religion is the core of the issue. No. The, the core. Of the, the core of the issue is 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 this someone who's reformable? And listen, I'll, I'll say to the situation at, at hand that you're explaining. Like I, I, to me, I think that if you ask the family of the person who was shot, I don't think that they would obviously want that person to ever come out of jail. So it, it, it becomes a very emotional situation on a very specific case on both sides. Is it up to the family? No, it's not up to the family. But I'm saying, though, they actually have to disagree because the family was heavily involved. And I think they'd rather have her out so they could try to take the time themselves. But Right. Well, so, yeah, but can we use revenge? Is revenge a legitimate basis for justice? Uh, it is for religion and some of it. All right. So here's what I want to do, guys. I want to wrap this up a little bit, but I, I want to focus on some core points. That maybe have eluded us because we've been all over the map. Um, yeah, as is so, usual. Sure, sure, but I didn't. I didn't see this going in this direction. I thought we were going to talk a little more about healthcare, uh, a little more about religion, and a little more about our polit current political environment, which is super divisive. And I thought maybe going deeper into these issues that we would find some cohesion on beliefs but well the problem is that the four not, of us see more closely like we're not a representative sample of this country sure which you know we had someone uh we had an early commenter saying we need to have some women here um i agree you know i i think we need to have a more diverse group of people that we're talking to especially when it comes to politics it's just tough to find um it, you know especially here in new york and I mean, you're in Charleston, you're not in, uh, I don't know, give me a Greenville, I don't know South Carolina that well. 
could be a, a it's not like in Virginia Beach or or you know oh, for, Bay, Virginia Beach is probably a, yeah. a more progressive Richmond, area. I mean, I mean, well, no, Richmond's Richmond's whatever. You'd have to say like uh, like Spotsylvania versus no, any know, place that's pretty densely populated is going to be probably more democratic than. You know, well, I mean, well, for instance, Virginia. Are we going based off of the demographics for this election? Because I would say most parts are, are not. If you if you talk about Virginia, like that DC and that little cut around DC mm -hmm. is all Democratic, but the rest of the state is, is very conservative. Yeah, so where you have a lot of people, so, that's what I'm getting at. Where you have a lot of people, it tends to be more Democratic, and where you have fewer people, it tends to be more Republican. That's not always the case, but I would say that would be the trend. And I don't know much about politics, but I you know I do know something about people, and the more people you're around, the more understanding you, you are, the more compassion that you have, and the more you can see you're exposed to other points of view and other cultures and things like that, which is an underlying thing when it comes to election. Sure. Right, when it, you know, because, because you're choosing two different, two different candidates that represent two different modalities of learning. Well, in regards to division or anything else like that, um, Right now, I'm gonna I'm gonna be the pessimist in the room and say that the division's only gonna get worse. And I, because and, and here's the reason why I see it. It's gonna be my prediction is that we're gonna see a tit for tat right now, where with the Supreme Court going the way it is, where the Republicans are going to push through their nominee and they they have the votes to to satisfy it, and they're going to be able to have a six to three majority, and the Democrats are lodging this complaint that the Republicans blocked their nominee in 2016 and are now back now are basically contradicting themselves in 2016. They said, we can't have a Supreme court nominee appointed in the same year as an election year. And then the exact same situation happens this year and they're fine with it. So the, well, the Democrats that the, the white house was a different party than the Senate. That's, right, right, right. But the point the is that's, the, that's not, that's not the logic that was proffered at the time in 2016. Agreed. So the Democrats are saying, Hey, you guys said all this stuff in 2016 and uh, you know, you're, you're not holding yourselves to the standard that you set for yourselves. And so the Democrats are going to say, you know what, if you guys are going to, set rules for yourself that you're not going to play by and you're going to set you're going to have all these unfair standards for us but not for you then you know what as soon as we're back in power which is likely based on what i'm seeing from the political futures markets then the democrats are going to probably do a equivalent power grab and i, I would say that it's not unthinkable that the democrats try to add seats to the supreme court which will have a temporary victory because they'll have more justices of their party on the supreme court but it's going to open the door to this kind of ever escalating conflict between the parties where one party says you're not being fair and the other party says, yeah, I am. And then when the power, when the balance of power shifts, the other party is going to say, well, you guys did it. I can do it. And it just escalates and it escalates. Well, and so I don't know. From, how do you get away from a two party system? We're not a two party system. We're not. That's the problem with America. No, I mean, that's you are. No, 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 we're not. Much are. We're not a square system. You are. There's, there's, America allows it to be a two-party system. There is more. Well, they allow it, than it is. But that's what I'm saying. Is that's the problem? Is the fact that there are more sure. parties. However, they get no national coverage. Okay, so we're Why? still two parties. Okay, but Why? you can say that there's how many seats does the Libertarian Party, does the Green Party, does the Working Families Party, does the point. Tea Party actually hold? Well, most, of those, most of those parties might have endorsing the Democratic candidate most times anyway. But whatever the case is, like, you can say that we have multiple parties, and sure, in theory, that's true, but in practice, we don't. So we have a two-party par system that is, it, it, it's a zero-sum game. And, and listen, I, I'll say it, it's definitely going to be something where now we're politicizing the Supreme Court. And we can go back and forth. Was it Harry Reid? Was it Mitch McConnell? Was it this one? Was it that one? But at the end of the day, it was both of them. And we are now going to be in a tug of war for at least the next decade or more with now the Supreme Court of, of taking away seats and adding seats, taking away, adding it's right. going to be an, an election issue for the next decade. Right. And I see and, that as only further into division. Yeah, exactly. And that's, and that's the, how do we get away? From so how do we get away from it? Yeah. Let's talk about that next time. Actually, let's talk about aliens next time. Yeah. Uh, aliens next time. We'll talk about that next Tuesday or something. Yeah. Uh, yeah. All right, cool. We're, uh, we're going to sign out. These guys are going to order some food or something. They're going to do a little debate party here where they do like some debate dance and play some Macarena music. Well,
we're just gonna watch the debate. That's yeah. that's. Uh, so, who's the master debater? <laughs> we're gonna find out. <laughs> I, Depends on what. <laughs> you know what? We're just not gonna go there. Um, I won't be here for that. So. Uh, <laughs> so he tells the stream. Thank you for joining us. Um, we'll catch. We'll catch you next time. We'll talk about some uh, extra restaurants. Right. <laughs> yeah, we'll keep it light next time. Adios. Peace. Take care, James. All right, I can tell you now that this is over with. That uh, that did not quite go the way I thought it would go. Uh, luckily, we didn't have to dive too deep into personal politics, things like that. I'm not too political, but um, but I definitely think it's a conversation we should look at revisiting. And uh, it's voting season, so pay attention. And uh, if you're interested in in uh, shaping the future, get out there and vote. I like PBR, I just got priced out of it.